When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly non-fiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover current event reads, recommendations based on popular fiction, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording this podcast on Saturday, March 17th. Happy St. Patrick's Day, Alice. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Um, I'm not sure how it is uh, where you are, but I'm in Chicago and it is going to be horrifying out. It's going to be bananas. I was in Chicago last year when they celebrated St. Patrick's Day um, because we were going to see Hamilton and it just happened to be the same weekend. Um, And we like walked down by the Green River, but it was, I don't like people. And so it was just like too many. Yeah, uh, I'm also not the greatest fan of large numbers of people, especially when they are all uh, very drunk. Very drunk. So, but of course, so today is my girlfriend's birthday and we are going, uh, because she wanted to, uh, and I love her, um, we are going on a St. Patrick's Day booze cruise on the Chicago River. What? Um, That sounds awesome. So we'll see if I survive for our next episode. Is it last year when we were there, it was super cold. So I think that like dampened people's spirits just a little, but it's nice there today. Yes. Yeah. It's pretty, it's like in the thirties, which for us is like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So yeah. Might as well wear sandals. (laughs) Yeah. I got it. So yeah. Do you want to do kind of like notes on last episode? Like kind of like, let's do some, let's do some follow up. Do you want to go first? I would love to because I want to tell people I was talking about uh, how my current read was I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. Um, mm, yep. First off the top, uh, first, it's great. It's a great, amazing read. Um, I finished it yesterday and it's moving and so well written. Um, it is also terrifying. It's so scary. <laughs> and um, I didn't realize that. And I'm so sorry. I told you you should bring it to Mexico. Um, but uh Oh my gosh, I was reading it and I was like, okay, I can't read this at night. Um, Right. It was like a thing where I would read it on the bus on the way to work because I was like, I can't, I can't do it. I like my free time at night. Um, There's, it's just so much about, I think it's that like they never caught the Golden State Killer or have not as of yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously a big part of Michelle McNamara's goal uh, was doing it, but um, just as like a heads up to people, if you have like a really low threshold, I have a pretty low threshold and I was able to get through it and I only had one nightmare, but um, uh, just, yeah, just like a heads up. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty scary. Yeah. I I read one chapter to see if it was going to be Mexico reading and I was like, nope, this is too scary. So I left it at home. Um, And my follow-up is on one of the books that I recommended in kind of our first new book section, uh, Educated by Tara Westover, which was uh, or is a memoir about her growing up uh, in a Mormon fundamentalist kind of isolationist family in Idaho. Uh, And I got that one from the library last weekend and I read it all in one day. It was so, 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 so good. Um, And just really... 
really smart and um, kind of talks about the value of education and what that has meant. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff about her coming into herself as kind of a feminist and a woman in this fundamentalist, misogynist family. And it's just, it's stellar. So I, I absolutely recommend that one. It was really, really good. Good to know. So... Yeah, there we are. So I guess before we jump into new books for this week, we're going to talk about our first sponsor. Uh, and our first sponsor is uh, the book She Calls She Caused a Riot by Hannah Jewell. And the synopsis is, uh, when you hear about a woman who is 100% pure and good, you're missing the best chapters of her life story. She Caused a Riot is an empowering, no-holes-barred look into the epic adventures and dangerous exploits of 100 inspiring women who are too brave, too brilliant, too unconventional, too political, too poor, or not ladylike enough or not white enough to be recognized by their contemporaries. Uh, Hannah Jewell is a camera host for the video team at the Washington Post and previously wrote for BuzzFeed UK, um, where she was known for her humor writing about gender and her satire of politics. Um, and one of the things that's cool about She Caused a Riot is that it has a really diverse cast of women covered in the book, um, women who are rarely found in other history books because they're from different countries, cultures, and time periods. Um, but all of their stories will um, appeal to the badass in all of us. So uh, if you're looking to add to your feminist library or get a, a great book for your friend, your sister, your daughter, your mom, or uh, anybody, perhaps your, your girlfriend for her birthday, uh, who is interested in learning about the unknown women of history who built cities, sparked revolutions, and crushed it, uh, then this book, She Caused a Riot by Hannah Jewell, might be the book for you. Fantastic. So there we go. Thank you for sponsoring this second episode of the For Real Podcast. Uh, now we're going to jump into new books. And uh, Alice, we have you up first. Yeah. So um, my first pick for uh, new releases is uh, Camp Austin, My Life as an Accidental Jane Austen Superfan by Ted Scheinman. Uh, this came out March 6th from FSG Originals. Uh, FSG's website says it is a raucous tour through the world of Mr. Darcy imitations, tailored gowns, and tipsy ballroom dancing. The son of a devoted Jane Austen scholar, Ted Scheinman spent his childhood summers eating Yorkshire pudding, singing in an Anglican choir, and watching Laurence Olivier as Mr. Darcy. Which, side note, have you seen that version of Pride and Prejudice? I have not, actually. It's hilarious. I bet uh, my sister loves Jane Austen and loves all of that, so I'm, I'm almost positive that Jenny has seen it, but I, I have not. It's, I think it's worth a watch. Laurence Olivier, so he does play Mr. Darcy. Greg Arson plays uh, Elizabeth Bennet. And it's so completely like bonkers in terms of the way it diverges <laughs> from the book. Like there's an archery contest at one point and she and Mr. Darcy nice. are pals. And then it all, and everyone like ends up with someone like Mary gets with like a bookish guy. It's all, <laughs> it's insane, but I really like it. Um, anyway, so back to the actual book, Camp Austin. Mm -hmm. I wanted this because I thought it was first of all, really interesting uh, uh, to read a book by a man um, about Jane Austen, because I, I feel like the field is very heavily women, and, and he actually addresses um, some of that. He talks about um, reflexive anti-Janeite misogyny, um, which I was really oh. glad that he touched on that. Yeah, uh, because there is this general perception, right, that um, that it is, it's for women, that Jane Austen is, is a writer for women. And when you actually look into what is happening in her books, you know, a lot of people say it's just about marriage, and he talks about this in the book, too. Um, it covers a, a lot of ground, which I really appreciated because it's it's a pretty quick read. Yeah. Um, but he he talks about how, you know, the actual the marriage is, is the structure of her books. Right. And then like everything that happens in between is so much about society. Um, I felt like it was a pretty good breakdown of Austin's personal background and the scholarship done on her work. Um, 
again, it's, it is a really short book, but it brought up a lot of Austin feels for me that I try <laughs> nice. to wash because I feel like she doesn't need it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I'm like, yeah. no, you can't be, you can't be a big Jane Austen fan because like, she's so popular and it's such a, it's a horrible reflex on my own part, but, um, you know, cool for Jane Austen. Actually, and it was so funny because he also talks about um, the kind of hatred between the Austin and the Bronte camps uh, and how, uh, but he talks about how Austin is inter- so inherently sociable and Bronte is, Charlotte Bronte, sorry, obviously Emily too, but I'm more interested in Charlotte Bronte. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlotte Bronte is so isolated. Um, Charlotte Bronte herself said about Jane Austen, uh, I should hardly like to live with her ladies and gentlemen in their elegant but confined <laughs> houses, which is such a Charlotte Bronte thing to say. That's and some it's shade just, right there, yeah. It's, oh yeah, no, she hated her. And it makes sense, right? Because it's like the next generation. Yeah. But um, but yeah, the whole thing about uh he, he talks about how this he's at this conference, like this Camp Austin is this conference. It's a gathering of fans and scholars, and um, and then he goes to um I'm assuming they say Jasna. It's like the Jane Austen National Society or something like that. Um, but it's it's this you know conference they have annually for Jane Austen fans, and um, it's it, that in itself, of course, is super sociable. I don't really know what a Bronte convention would be like. Yeah. Um, lots of people kind of scattered on the moors, standing by themselves, looking into the wind. I feel like would be probably yeah, that'd be a definitely a that'd be a session for sure. Yeah, so it's. Uh, it's really, really good. He talks about the story of his indoctrination into this sort of enthusiastic world and his struggle to shake his, you know, scholarly mother's influences while uh, navigating hasty theatrical adaptations, undaunted scholars in cravats and unseemly petticoat fittings. Um, the only thing that I wasn't super thrilled about with it uh, was he talks about uh, in one part, he gets a little bit of his own whatever um occasionally (laughs) occasionally not frequently but like to a point where i was like sir you know he talks about like the people who were not scholars at the convention he calls them civilians and i was like you're not in the army what are you doing and then um the only other time i was like sir was when um he was talking about a speaker and he says her, he talks about her somewhat preening lexicon, but on the same, uh, right. On the same page, same page as that. He uses the word postprandial to talk about, oh dear. right. They were all like chatting after dinner and he's like our postprandial chatter. And I was like, sir, no, no, no. Uh, okay. But not to, not to, again, just wait from the book comes out or came out March 6th. Um, I, I think it's definitely worth a read. If you're at all interested in Jane Austen, if you want kind of, your thoughts stirred on her if you haven't really examined your feelings on her novels in a while. Yeah. Um, I think it's really great. So that's that's my first recommendation. So Camp Austin, My Life as an Accidental Jane Austen Superfan by Ted Schneeman? Scheinman. Scheinman? Oh, thanks. All right. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up because I, I saw this one when I was looking around new books and I sent the link to my sister because she loves Jane Austen um, and she got excited about it. So I'm glad that you endorse it. I'll pass that on for sure. Um, unless she's listening and then she'll know. All right. Uh, My first pick for new books this week is called uh, The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote by Elaine Weiss, which came out March 6th from Viking. Uh, And this is a book about the last little period of trying to get the 19th Amendment ratified. So uh, the book is set in Nashville in August of 1920 um, because Tennessee was the last date that was needed to ratify the amendment that would give women the right to vote. And a book is about kind of the, I think it was about six weeks that they, the fight 
fight between the suffragettes, the the antis, who are women who fought against the right to vote, uh, and then other political and social and uh, figures, corporate figures in the area and the fight that they were having in that very specific place and very specific time in the um, enfranchisement movement. So um, one of the reasons this book caught my attention is because um, I'm kind of embarrassed, actually, about how little I know about the whole women's suffrage movement and the effort to win the right to vote. Um, I just... I. I should know more than I actually do. Um, and so this one caught my attention because kind of I like the short time spirit time span, um, but I think it's also going to be a good kind of expander about kind of the history of that movement as well, even though the the plot or the action of the book is kind of contained. Um, and I, I read the introduction in the first couple of chapters and I just was very hooked from the moment I started. Um, in one of the early chapters, she says, the conflict quickly devolved into a vicious face-off, brimming with dirty tricks and cutting betrayals, sexist rancor, racial bigotry, booze, and the Bible, with ghosts of the Civil War hovering over the proceedings and jitters lingering from the Great War, amplifying the tension. Um, and I just thought, like, if this book has all of those things in it, then I am going to be uh, pretty excited and sold. So, um, yeah, that is my my uh, my first pick for new books is The Woman's Hour by Elaine Weiss, um, which is really exciting because as as you said, right, it's, uh, it's August nineteen twenty, so we're coming up on mm-hmm. the hundredth anniversary of the Women's Right to Vote oh, in America. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like we we talked about this outside. This is like my yeah. main area of study is um, American women's suffrage, and this I I actually don't know that much about like the 19 teens and 1920. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited that this book did come out. Uh, you said March 6th, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's super recent. Yeah. And it's this, I do know, however, that this final time period that it's talking about is legitimately so dramatic. And like, it comes, it's like one of those, I don't want to ruin it for you, but like something happens and you're like, Oh my gosh, like it's, it's really yeah. exciting. And you're kind of like, this seems very cinematic. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a great, it's a great um, event to chronicle. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. Uh, your turn. Oh, right. My next pick. Um, it is Visionary Women by Andrea Barnett. Um, it came out March 13th from Echo Books. And it is about four influential women we thought we knew well. Jane Jacobs, Rachel Carson, Jane Goodall, and Alice Waters, and how they spearheaded the modern progressive movement. So this is the story of four visionaries who profoundly shaped the world we live in today. Together, these women linked not by friendship or field. Uh, I don't think any of them knew each other really, but by their no, but by their choice to break with convention uh, in the 1950s and 60s, showed what one person speaking truth to power can do. Jane Jacobs fought for livable cities and strong communities. Rachel Carson warned us about poisoning the environment with Silent Spring. Uh, Jane Goodall demonstrated the indelible kinship between humans and animals by noting that uh, chimpanzees use tools, which we did not know before. Mm -hmm. Um, And Alice Waters urged us to reconsider what and how we eat. Um, She went to France and lived there for a while and basically was a huge proponent of the organic movement. Um, This was a time, all these people basically were living in this time in the 50s and 60s, right, where society's general idea was that technology is automatically good. And um, it's kind of the uh, idea of the founders of Jurassic Park, right? Mm -hmm. Where Ian Malcolm (laughs) says, uh, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Um, And that's kind of where people were careening at the time. One of the the people that I thought was the most fascinating um, in this book was um, Jane Jacobs, because I didn't really know anything about her. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was her whole talk about, I really wanted to read 
uh, the death and life of great American cities um, based on this book, which is her, her book basically decrying the huge skyscrapers that were going up in cities. And at the time in the, in the, I think early sixties, they were going to demolish um, the West village in New York. And she was like, no, the, the way that people actually live, the things that make them happy and like functioning as a society are these, you know, human scaled um, buildings. Mm-hmm. And when you build these huge skyscrapers and you're destroying community and you're destroying this like walkability, you're making people miserable. And people hadn't sat and thought to, like thought about this before. And so like, but all of these four women just had such a huge impact in like the general consciousness of how we live today. I mean, it was a fascinating book. Clearly I was pretty yeah. <laughs> into it, um, but I, I highly recommend it. It's Visionary Women by Andrea Barnett. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I love books that kind of pull people who maybe don't obviously have connections to each other, but show how they kind of are moving in the same direction or doing the same kinds of things. Um, and it made me, it reminded me that Alice Waters actually wrote a memoir that came out last year um, called Coming to My Senses, which is sort of a whole story about her coming as a, a countercultural cook, um, which I have not read, but I feel like somebody at Book Riot did and said it was really good. So um, that could be another one after this book to kind of jump into um, if you're interested in Alice Waters more. But Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so my next book uh, to highlight for new books is called The Last Wild Men of Borneo by Carl Hoffman. Um, and so Carl Hoffman is an author that I have enjoyed for a really long time. Um, I think this is his third book, um, and I've read two previous ones by him. Um, the first is one called The Lunatic Express, which um, was all about the kind of uh, the dangerous transportation that exists around the world. And so what he did was kind of tried to travel around the globe, taking the kinds of transportation that people have to take every day, and then highlighting some of the ways in which, like, in the United States, we're very lucky that we have generally very safe transportation systems that most people are not that lucky. Um, and then his second book or the second one I read is called Savage Harvest, which was a kind of historical travel mystery into the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller, who um, was out near Africa or along the coast of Africa doing some exploring. And then I uh, just just disappeared. And there's some question about whether he was eaten by cannibals or um, whether he like joined some tribes that we have not met yet. Um, And so it was a really interesting book kind of talking about that man and his experiences and then kind of going into that area and trying to um, understand it and understand what might have happened to Michael Rockefeller. So um, this new book, The Last Wild Men of Borneo, is I think kind of a mix between those two. Um, So it's a kind of a historical mystery about a guy who um, goes into Borneo and then at some point disappears and is never heard from again. Um, Kind of paralleled with a story of another man who has gone into Borneo, but who is there to collect and deal native art. Um, And so he kind of parallels these two guys as people who are um, white people going into Borneo for different reasons and at slightly different times, um, but kind of parallels their experiences there and what they learned, um, and what happened to them. Um, and I've only read a couple of chapters of it, but, um, it's really like, I like the framing. I like his his style. I like, um, that he has kind of a sense of humor about it. And I think that he's going to be a good critical eye of, the way that these two people, these two men have behaved and, and what that might teach us about how we interact with others. Um, so I liked his previous books and so I'm excited about this one, um, which is called The Last Wild Men of Borneo by Carl Hoffman. And real quick question about Savage uh, Harvest, yes. the other book you mentioned by him. It, did they find Michael Rockefeller? No, he never really 
he never finds him. So his assumption. So what happened was, I got to, if I'm remembering right, um, there, he's, Mark Rockefeller is on a boat with the rest of his party and something happens. And then he jumps off the boat and is going to swim to shore because he thinks that's a good idea. And then he is just never seen again. And so there's speculation that, and so it launched this enormous search for him at the time because he was the son of a very rich person and all of that. Um, and so Hoffman kind of explores like one avenue, which is that like he found a tribe and then uh, he was eaten by them uh, or that he found a tribe and sort of became part of them, but perhaps was also eventually eaten by them because of some of the cultural beliefs around cannibalism that these tribes that he would have run into in the place that he disappeared, um, you know, what they what they believed. Um, or he could possibly have just drowned, but nobody really knows. <laughs> so it's still a mystery. Uh, super interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but the but the actual new book is the last Wild Men of Borneo. Yes. Mm-hmm. Great. That sounds good. Um, yeah. keeping uh, I guess on our river theme for that, <laughs> yeah, right? Maybe. Isn't there? Yeah. there if, if we go rivers. back to Rockefeller in a river, yeah, there's rivers. There's rivers. Um, that's a smooth segue. Uh, so I chose this book because I thought the title was hilarious. Um, <laughs> that was what made me initially look at it. Of course, I should say the actual book is good. Um. But the title is Disappointment River, uh, Finding and Losing the Northwest Passage by Brian Kastner. Uh, And that comes out or came out March 13th from Doubleday. So Disappointment River is about uh, in 1789, Alexander Mackenzie traveled 1200 miles on the immense river in Canada that now bears his name in search of the fabled Northwest Passage that had eluded mariners for hundreds of years. In 2016, Memoirist Brian Kastner retraced Mackenzie's route by canoe in a grueling journey and discovered the passage he could not find. It is a dual historical narrative and travel memoir, which is so close to my heart, that kind of thing, uh, that at once transports readers back to the heroic age of North American exploration and places them in a still rugged but increasingly fragile Arctic wilderness in the process of profound alteration by the dual forces of globalization and climate change. So Mackenzie set off 14 years before Lewis and Clark, um, which is just crazy if you think about it, right? Because you're like going into this, oh gosh. I mean, obviously there are tribes there, but you are not part of those tribes. You don't have some kind of support or anything. You're just going by yourself um, on this journey. And you don't know where you're going, like literally no idea. Because there's there's like nothing there that you know about. Um, Like that's crazy. So the, the reason that it's called Disappointment River is that um, Mackenzie named a river disappointment on his <laughs> quest to find the Northwest Passage, which I enjoy so much. I mean, it's very sad for him. Um, but can you imagine? Yeah, but can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, just like going and then you're like, oh, I failed, but I found this river, but I'm so disappointed. And then you decide, I'm going to call it disappointment. Oh, man, that's hilarious. Um, so- I mean, it's not, but it is. So do I even need to say the title again? Sure. It is Disappointment River, Finding and Losing the Northwest Passage by Brian Kastner. Uh, and it came out March 13th. That sounds so funny. I'm like really good. 
good good pick. Uh, my last pick is not nearly as cheerful as cheerful as that. Um, it is called "There Are No Dead Here" by Maria McFarland Sanchez Moreno, uh, which came out in late February from Nation Books. Uh, and this is a kind of piece of contemporary journalism history about three ordinary Colombians who risked everything to reveal the collusion between the new mafia and much of the country's military and political establishment um, following a massacre of suspected guerrilla fighters in Colombia in the late 1990s. Um, Excuse me. So uh, the book, the three people who the book kind of follows are a human rights activist, a prosecutor, and a journalist. Um, And it goes into the investigation that um, ended up with one of them being killed and then put um, about a third of Colombia's members of Congress into prison and kind of led to some reforms in that country. Um, And this one caught my attention because of the title, which is great. Um, But also, like, I just do not know very much about what has happened in Colombia and this period of time and kind of all of the turmoil and and just terribleness that happened there. Um, And so when I saw this book, I thought, boy, that seems like a, a good the kind of book that has the kind of frame and angle that um, lets me get into some history that I sometimes have a problem with. So um, I just, it, it, it sounded really like a tough read, obviously, but a, a good kind of serious one that I, I, I was curious about. So um, yeah, There Are No Dead Here by Maria McFarland Sanchez Moreno from Nation Books. So not not as cheerful as Disappointment River. I mean, you got to switch it up. You got to have just, you know, uh, differing notes on there. Indeed. Yes. All right. So that is what we've got this week for new books. Um, that's probably a segment we're going to keep doing in the podcast because everybody likes to hear about new books that are coming out and it's fun to, to find some to recommend. Um, our second segment, we're going to slip into, um, kind of our weekly theme. So our first podcast, we talked about International Women's Day. Uh, and this one, uh, was Alice's suggestion again, it was to talk about, uh, the springtime since it is March and we are, hopefully on the upswing of winter and it will soon be um what are we talking about well we're talking what, what's the word i'm um uh, what's the word i'm talking about the equinox i'm not sure the, yes thank you that, which is on the day that episode two comes out is march yes, 20th there we go. Equinox. so i was like eh, seems right Yes, good. So we're going to talk about books that remind us somehow of the spring. And we have taken this in some different directions, I think. So I'll let you go first. Oh, good. My uh, my first pick is Wild and Rare by Adam Rain Arvidson. And this it comes out or came out again on March 15th. So this, this last week, published by Minnesota Historical Society Press, which I have Ooh, a Minnesota. real... Yeah, right? First of all, Minnesota. Shout out to Kim. Uh, so secondly, I have a really soft place in my heart for uh historical presses and university presses and if i can promote their books i love to do that um this book is really readable i know that that can be a challenge with university press books which are you know main some made sometimes to be just mainly for very serious academics delving deep this book is about uh, what can endangered species tell us about our part of the world what can they tell us about us um the elusive Canada lynx bear kittens in Minnesota's northeastern woods, Aww. which, by the way, please find them. <laughs> they sound so cute. <laughs> uh, in the far southeastern part of the state, the succulent Leedy's roseroot clings to cold cliffs. Oh, that's a fun tongue twister. On the northwestern grasslands, the western prairie-fringed orchid grows only on ancient glacial beach ridges. And in the rivers of the Twin Cities metro area, 
the snuffbox muscle snaps on a fish's nose to give its larva a temporary home. Which, by the way, there that are is photos. an amazing name. There are photos of this online. Snuffbox muscle. Look it up. Uh, these species and 15 others living in Minnesota are on the federal endangered species list. So Adam Rain Arvidsson, he does a very like first person look um, at these. He goes and he chats with naturalists and he goes into the woods and, you know, finds them, does not touch them. And um, it's it's really good. If you love nature, I think you should check it out. It made me really excited for spring and hiking and the outdoors um, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. It's a little hard to find uh, hiking areas. So you have to basically rent a car or take a metro train into the suburbs, but it made me want to do that. Um, yeah. and I just, the first chapter is on dwarf trout lilies, which are like these tiny, tiny little lilies that you can only find in Minnesota. And it like, I just want to look at dwarf trout lilies in the woods with old people is what this made me realize. <laughs> Cause he was talking about all of these old people who like go and just like count the dwarf trout lilies to see how the population is doing. And I was like, that sounds like a fantastic afternoon. I would love to do that. Um, and you know, this, I felt the same way at the end of this as I felt with the book, the sixth extinction, um, which is there's just like a relief that there's almost always someone who cares about the thing. Right. Uh So like, even for example, with this dwarf trout lily, I'm not going to actually go and spend a lot of my time counting dwarf trout lilies. I would do it for an afternoon, but this is not a thing I would do regularly, but there are people who care so much about preserving the dwarf trout lily. And it just like makes me want to cry because I'm like, that's amazing. And we have so many people in this world who care about so many different things. And it just makes sure that a lot of things get taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, this book reminded me of that. So that's just really nice. And again, it's Wild and Rare by Adam Rain Arvidsson uh, by Minnesota Historical Society Press. Oh, that's really neat. Like, I like the idea of a, like, when we think about endangered species, I always feel like we think like rainforests and that kind of thing. Um, and we don't think as much about like the stuff in our backyard that we could be admiring and protecting at the same time. So that actually, that sounds super cool. Um, good pick, Alice. Yeah, um, it was lovely. Yeah. So your um, mention about living in Chicago and not being able to get to wilderness because it is outside the city actually leads well into the first book that I wanted to talk about. Um, so when I think about spring, I, I live in Minnesota, right? And so like it is cold all of the winter and I do not go outside because it is terrible. Um, and so when spring comes, I'm finally like, yes, please, let's get outside. Let's get in nature. Let's get exploring. Um, but I also kind of live into or live in a city. So um you have to maybe sometimes go a little bit. But um, the book I want to mention is one that came out in 1999, I believe. And it is called The Meadowlands by Robert Sullivan. And this is a book about um, a wilderness adventure on the edge of New York City. Um, so The Meadowlands is this like swampland, basically, that's like five miles from the Empire State Building that is vilified, half developed, half untamed, and much dumped on. And it's just this like, kind of disgusting swamp that like people throw garbage in and all of these other things but also it has rare birds um people think that jimmy hoffa may possibly have been dumped there um there's a big sports arena nearby and it's just like this very weird place outside of manhattan um that robert sullivan writes about going to when he wants to get out into nature um because it's like natural but also not um but it's a place where like you can't build because there's like crazy like the the ground is bad for building um plus there's like lots of crap in it (laughs) 
And so um, I read this one a long time ago, and it just is a really funny, different way of approaching nature writing because it's admiring of this place that like in some ways is not worth admiring because it's so just gross, but also important to the people who like it. And the cover of the paperback that I have shows him in the front of the canoe and he's got a, um, his paddle and he, the paddle, he is pulling out of the water, a shoe. And it's just like a sh- an old shoe that's been <laughs> like in the water in this swamp. So, um, yeah, I read this a long time ago and I just thought it was really, it was really funny and, um, kind of a, a different take on nature writing than some other people might do since it's not a pristine place that he's showing, showing why we should admire and enjoy. So oh, um, I was going to ask, does he, does he then love the Meadowlands or is he? He does. He yeah. Does. Okay, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a well-loved place. I'm probably making it sound more gross than it actually is, but it's just a very <laughs> weird, like it's not a pristine wilderness area because it's five miles outside of New York city, but it is a wilderness area that does have some rare birds and different types of animals, but also like people have dumped garbage there too. And so it's just very, very strange, but uh, fun to read about. So that book is that uh, the Meadowlands by Robert Sullivan. Okay. Um, this, it sounds interesting. You know, I would look at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, my next pick is the sound of a wild snail eating by Elizabeth Tova Bailey. It came out in 2010. Uh, I feel like I saw this everywhere for a while. Like it was one of those really popular sort of ubiquitous um, books, mm-hmm. uh, but I had never picked it up. And it turns out it's like this really quick, fun, beautiful, like touching read, um, which I was so surprised by. So Elizabeth Tova Bailey tells the inspiring and intimate story of her year-long encounter with a Neohelix albolabris which is a common forest snail. Um, So basically she gets a viral or bacterial pathogen and she's pretty much stuck at home Mm. um, for a long period of time. And so she's recovering at home. She goes for a walk with her friend one day and her friend brings her a snail. (laughs) Right. And her, her friend's quote was, I thought it was so funny. She's just like, I thought you might enjoy this. (laughs) <laughs> and you're just like, can you imagine? <laughs> like, you're like, you brought me a snail. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. But she actually, so the whole thing, um, she watches uh, as the snail takes up residence on her nightstand. Um, and she just observes it so minutely. And the way she writes about it is you just realize how it actually reminded me of my childhood, you know, like when you are a kid and you're like lying on the grass and like, it's fascinating to you because you're like peering at like stuff in the grass and like paying such close attention to like things that as an adult, you're like, I don't have time for that. I gotta go. Mm -hmm. And because she is bedridden, she spent, she pays so much attention to this little thing and it's fascinating. Um, So actually I really loved it. Uh, Again, it is the sound of a wild snail eating by Elizabeth Tova Bailey. Oh man, that sounds really Really good. I like that. Good pick. Um, my final pick for this springtime books is uh, Animal Vegetable Miracle by Barbara Kingsolver. Uh, and this book came out in, I think, 2007, but maybe that's the paperback. Oh, man. Shoot, I didn't write that down. Anyway, um, it is a book about um, Barbara Kingsolver. She's a you know famous, well-known author. And this book is a memoir about her family's um, personal challenge to eat only locally grown foods. So foods that they have either grown themselves on their property or that they are procuring from neighbors in their region. Um, and they, the challenge is to do that for one year after they move from Arizona to a farm in the Appalachian Mountains. Um, 
So they have a few exceptions. Um, every family member gets one cheat item. That is something that they can't get locally or, or don't want to for some reason. Um, and then they have some tweaks during the year that I can't remember the specifics of. But uh, in general, they just spend an entire year eating locally and uh, taking their food as close to home as possible. Um, and so it's this really cool book about the way that um, food connects to community and how it can be used to connect with family and with history and with your region and the land. Um, but not in like a pedantic way, I guess. It's very, very specific to their personal experience and they're just writing about themselves. And it, it felt like a book that didn't make a lot of um like judgments or pronouncements about how other people should do things or saying that like, because you like to eat gummy bears, you're a bad person. Um, it's just very much about like <laughs> why they wanted to do that. Um, and it, I, I read it in grad school, I think, and um, I'm not a gardener. Like I have tried to keep gardens and plants and I, I can't, they, they just die. Um, but it like, it made me want to try it again when I read it and then I did and I failed. Um, so this would not be an experiment for me necessarily because I am, I'm, I do not have a green thumb, but uh, it really made me want to pay attention to my food and think more about it. And so, um, I think it's a, it's a, a good one and it goes through kind of a year of the farm. So you get each season and seasonal ideas about what foods are good and which ones aren't and, and all of that. So, uh, it's a really beautifully funny, good, good book. And that's, uh, could you remind me of the thing? And yes, Animal Vegetable Miracle by Barbara Kingsolver. And that ties in a little bit with, with Alice Waters and the whole, organic mm, yeah. movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also, I'm glad that I'm not a terrible person for liking gummy bears. Cause I just thought of that because I went to the grocery store yesterday because I was stress eating gummy bears and I was like, <laughs> give me all of that. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, on that note, uh, our second sponsor for the podcast is Everything is Horrible and Wonderful by Stephanie Whittleswax. Stephanie Whittleswax's life changed forever with one phone call. Her brother Harris, a star in the comedy world known for his life, um, his work on shows like Parks and Recreation, had died of a heroin overdose. In beautiful, unsentimental, and surprisingly funny prose, Stephanie Whittleswax alternates between her brother's struggle with addiction and the first year after his death in all its emotional devastation. This compelling portrait of a comedic genius and a profound exploration of the love between siblings is a year of magical thinking for a new generation of readers. Um, So Everything is Horrible and Wonderful is a grief memoir based on the Stephanie Whittleswax essay, The New Normal, which was originally published on Medium and has been viewed more than 250,000 times. Uh, Her brother Harris was loved by many, including comedians like Sarah Silverman, who called the book epically poignant. Um, And it's uh, with heroin abuse on the rise and the opioid crisis reaching critical mass in the U.S., uh, Stephanie Whittles waxes story about her brother's overdose and death prompts an important conversation about the impact of addiction. Um, It was an Amazon best book of the month and everything is horrible and wonderful is a year of magical thinking for the Lena Dunham generation that combines a heartbreaking story of loss with a compelling portrait of comedic genius and a profound exploration of the love between siblings. Um, and we thank them for sponsoring. Yes. So that's a, a good sponsor to, I guess, lead into our third segment. We're going to switch this one up this week. Um, last, uh, uh, this time we're going to talk current event reads. So we're going to look at kind of something that's happening in 
politics, culture, whatever right now, and then a couple of books that we think could help um, give you some context or better understanding of what is going on there. Um, And the thing that's been on my mind lately has been uh, the gun debate in the United States, and in particular, um, the Parkland school shooting in Florida and kind of how those kids and those students have helped through their grief and their processing and their activism have started to really shift the debate on guns in the country. And I don't know like what's going to happen there. But I feel like the conversation has gone on a lot longer than it usually does after a mass shooting. Is that fair? Yeah, I think I agree for sure. And so I've been thinking a lot about some books that I read in the last few years that have talked about gun culture and about um, guns in the United States that I think provide some interesting context in a couple of different ways. So I'm going to do two and then Alice has got one at the end for this section. Um, And so the first book I want to mention is uh, Columbine by Dave Cullen. Um, And this book is... I came out about a decade after that 1999 school shooting at Columbine High School. Um, and it is, I would say, I think most people would say, like the the definitive account of that incident and what happened. Um, and so it uh, starts with a really very deeply detailed look at what happened the day of the shooting, what, what, what worked for those two students as they went about what they were going to do and what didn't work and what happened to the people who were there that day. Um, And so it really kind of goes through and walks us through what happened and then goes forward to look at how everyone was affected by the shooting afterwards and then also what led these two students to attack their school and try to blow it up. Um, And so it's really wide-ranging. And I picked this book up in 2012 in the wake of the Sandy Hook shooting because I remember um, after that happened, I just I was really struggling with like that we didn't have any news about it, right? Like it happened and there was some news that trickled out that day and then it we didn't know anymore and we couldn't know anymore. And I was just really, I struggled with that because I just wanted to understand like why something this horrible could happen. Um, and so I picked up this book because I thought, well, maybe this will... I don't know. I need to read more about this. I need to read more about guns for some reason. I'm going to pick up this book. And then I read it in like a day. And it is a big book. So, I mean, I just like sat down and read it. Um, and it was incredible. Like it, um, one of the things that has stuck with me and that I think makes it relevant today is that it shows how kind of the original narratives that we had about Columbine, that these kids were bullied, that they were you know, violent video games were part of the cause, that these students were isolated. And that's why they decided what they were going to do. Like, None of those are true. Um, the one of the kids went to prom a couple days before. The other one was popular and like well liked by many of his classmates. Um, and so I think it's about like the narratives we want to have about kids and guns are just not accurate. And we like to pretend that that's we can blame video games or, or isolation or whatever. Um, but that even in this school shooting that we think we all know, that's that's not what happened. That's not what this was about. Um, and so I think it just is a good book for, I guess. Context, I guess, just to show that like we can come to narratives about these tragedies and we can come to understand them eventually, um, but that the narratives we are hearing may not be the ones that ultimately prove to be true. If that makes sense. Yeah. Can Can I add a note to that? Because yeah, mm-hmm. I I think I read this in like 2013 um, after Columbine happened when I was I think a freshman or in eighth grade yeah, or something, mm-hmm, and too. I. Yeah. And I very much like ignored everything that was going on about it at the time. Cause I was like, I, I like just shut down and mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want to you know, know what's going to be happening. So I wanted to read this and I didn't, he researched it for like 10 years yeah. and it just, it's, you're right. It's such an impressive book. Um, I felt like he tried really hard to balance the information um, about 
uh, the, the killers with the victims, yeah. like information about the victims, how it affects them. Like you were saying, like, right, like how it affects them years later. Um, I thought it was really, really well done. And um, I don't know if you saw on Twitter going around was, you know, people now are, there's sort of a narrative about what was it like? Walk up, don't walk out. Oh, it was like yeah. some mm-hmm. horrible yep. hashtag happening where, cause they were, they were furthering this idea, right. That these kids who were doing these things are bullied and that, you know, if it basically right, putting the onus on the victims and saying you should be nicer to these people. And then if you just make friends with them, they won't do this. Mm-hmm. And so that's what um, another reason I think this book is so important to either reread or to look at for the first time uh, the Columbine is that he, he does dispel that myth where he's like, no, that everyone was saying these kids were bullied. Absolutely not the case. Yeah. Um, and that's just what we all you know want to believe to have like this concrete, like point to reason, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, we can fix this for the, and it's like, no, not in that way. Right, we can point to stopping bullying as a way to stop gun violence when like, no, we have too many guns. That's why we have gun violence. But anyway, yeah, I yeah, totally agree. Um, and the second book I'm going to suggest kind of fits into that, like, what is the deal with guns in the United States? Um, and it's called Another Day in the Death of America by Gary Young. Um, and so what Gary Young does in this book is he picks a random day, November 23rd, 2013, and he writes stories about the 10 young people, 10 kids who were killed by guns in the United States on that particular day. Um, and in the intro of the book, he explains how that, how that gay, how he, you know, went about choosing that day to show that it's not like he didn't pick a day that was particularly tragic just to make his point. Like it's statistically well within like what is normal. Um, and there's a, a whole explanation for it that I found very convincing. Um, but yeah, it's just stories of 10 young people, so less than 18, who were killed by guns on a single day. And there's just a real big range of these stories. Uh, there's one that's a little kid who is killed by a hunting rifle that's left unlocked at a friend's house. And then there are kids who are killed in gang violence. There's kids, just a, a real range to show that like it's not one kind of kid. It's not one kind of family. It's not anything like that. Like gun violence is everywhere in this country and it affects kids. It can affect any kid. Um, and it sort of talks about what it means that we live in a country that can't enact meaningful gun measures to protect children, despite a churn of people that are killed every day, uh, not in mass shootings, just in single incidents. Um, and I read this one last year and it just is just, it was really sobering and, and hard to read. Um, but really, illustrated to me that like our gun problem is not just not just one person it's not just one kind of thing it's it's all over and it's big and there's a lot we should be thinking about as we try to try to address it so I think it kind of talks about guns in this whole Parkland incident in a way that's not about mass shooting that's just about like we got a lot of guns out there and anybody can get them and anyone can be hurt by them um so I I really really recommend that one as well and it's not a it's not a huge book either so it's um you know, it's definitely readable and and approachable in some ways too. Um, it's very, very good. Uh, that sounds like a book I will definitely try to pick up and that it will be hard to read, but um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's one of those things that it sounds like it really sticks with you. And um, yeah, it's really interesting too, because some of the kids in their family or some of the families were very open with him and very willing to talk and talk about their kid and talk about, you know, how their kid ended up in the situation they ended up in where they were killed. Uh, And some of the families really didn't want to. And so he kind of approaches each one a little differently based on how much cooperation he got with their families and how much cooperation he got with the authorities who are investigating. Um, But they're all, they'll come at it from a slightly different way, which was really interesting too. 
Oh, wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, jumping back like 50 years. Oh my gosh. Almost 60 years. Oh no. Why? <laughs> Time marches on. Um, uh, my pick is Witness to the Revolution, Radicals, Resisters, Vets, Hippies, and the Year America Lost Its Mind and Found Its Soul by Clara Bingham, um, which just came out last year. So as the 1960s drew to a close, the United States was coming apart at the seams. From August 1969 to August 1970, the nation witnessed 9,000 protests and 84 acts of arson or bombings at school across the country. Yeah, um, there was a lot of information here that I was totally shocked by. Uh, the American yeah. death toll in Vietnam was approaching 50,000, and the ascendant counterculture was challenging nearly every aspect of American society. Claire Bingham's unique oral history of that tumultuous time unveils anew that moment when America careened to the brink of a civil war at home as it fought a long, feudal war abroad. So this, I was looking for a book about student resistance um, because of yeah. um, the walkout uh, that happened last week. And yeah. uh, the march, uh, the march we're having on the twenty fourth uh, of March, mm-hmm. and this is the one that popped up that I thought seemed the most sort of. The, as I've done research uh, into twentieth century history, which I've ignored for a long time, I tend to stay stuck uh, in the nineteenth century. Um, I've been drawn more and more to the sixties, which I think growing up, um, if you remember in like the nineties when we were kids, there was like a kind of a sixties thing, but it was all like. I don't know, like tie dye and like just a lot of, you <laughs> yeah. know, like very, very sort of superficial aesthetic stuff from the 60s. Bell so I, and, yeah. exactly. Oh gosh. Um, but <laughs> as, uh, so I always thought of the 60s as just like hippies and music festivals and like, that's it. And I think I, <laughs> I dismissed a lot of the, uh, immense social change that was happening. So obviously with the book yeah. I mentioned earlier, Visionary Women, we had immense, uh, um, sort of social consciousness changes happening. And with this, mm-hmm. we had so many people who were doing so many um, things to counter the main messages that that uh, sort of society was putting out. And I feel like one in the 1990s and in the 2000s, it was, life was kind of like, okay, yeah, we did that in the 60s and then we're done. And it, there's such like this interesting surge of energy happening again now. Like, yeah. I used to think that other than marching for gay rights, which was never like huge numbers of people, I, I thought that those days were done. I remember talking with my brother and he was like, people just don't march in large numbers anymore. And uh, like out on the streets and now that's happening. And so yeah. I think that looking back to the 60s and what people did and what they were able to accomplish and then what is happening now, I think it's just like a fascinating parallel. Um, Definitely. And really, really worth looking at. So again, that is Witness to the Revolution by Clara Bingham. That's a good one. Yeah, I think that's a great kind of illustration of things in the past we can learn and and build on today for sure. Um, And so we're going to close out this week's podcast with uh, the books we are reading right now. So Alice, you are reading one that sounds super good. So I'm going to let you go first. It's awesome. Okay, so I'm reading Political Tribes, Group Instinct, and the Fate of Nations by Amy Chua. Um, I thought her name sounded familiar, and then I looked yeah. her up, and she wrote Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, which was so controversial for so a while. So big, yeah. Um, yeah, and I did not know. She's a Yale law professor, um, <laughs> because I never read Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, so I don't know her background. But when I, I didn't even know this book, uh, obviously, it was by her, but I put it on hold because... Um, I'm really fascinated also by group instinct and kind of our our basic natures that I think that we tend to um, ignore or or at least um, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for where you just sort of put things down and try to ignore it. Anyway, sublimate, mm. something like that. Sublimate, mm-hmm. sublimate. Um, <laughs> so thank you. Uh, so uh, because America tends to see the world in terms of nation states engaged in great ideological battles, um, capitalism versus communism, democracy versus authoritarianism, or the free world versus the axis of evil, um, we are often spectacularly blind to the power of tribal politics. And time and again, this is her main point, this blindness has undermined American foreign policy. So she goes a lot into foreign policy. She talks about how us completely misunderstanding Vietnam and the sort of quote-unquote tribal politics happening there um, were a huge reason why uh, we just failed disastrously in Vietnam. Um, And the same with Iraq, right? I I feel like this has been a larger message uh, with we went into Iraq not knowing anything about, you know, the history of the peoples there. And we just, Americans, she kind of says um, early on in it that it's kind of a good thing and a bad thing that we have this very kind of nationalistic um, message to basically like, if you live in America, you're an American, which I know not, you know, some people say no, but those people suck. So (laughs) it's pretty much like, no matter what your background, right, you, you just, you're an American. And a lot of other countries don't have that. Um, Uh, Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Right. So it's hard for us to not just assume like, oh, well, like they live in Iraq, so they're an Iraqi. So they have like this, you know, and it's like, no, that people don't always think that way. And they have their own allegiances to different things, which obviously we do, too. But I think her argument is that um, we do have kind American of American nationalism is different than yeah. the kind of nationalism you might find from other countries. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a pretty good sum up of it. Um, yeah, so interesting. Yeah, she's just getting a lot into it. And I uh, I'm really loving it so far. She writes in a really accessible, great way. And I think she makes some awesome points. Oh, so cool. again, that's Political Tribes uh, by Amy Chua. Interesting. Uh, that sounds that sounds good. Good pick. Um, I think I've said that like 18 times now. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, all right. So I am kind of in the middle of two nonfiction books right now. Um, one that I am excited to finish and one that I am not sure if I will finish. Uh, the one that I am not sure if I will finish is uh, Grant by Ron Chernow, um, which is an epic biography of President Ulysses S. Grant by uh, Ron Chernow, who's written a bunch of big biographies, including the biography of Alexander Hamilton that inspired Lin-Manuel Miranda to create Hamilton, which I love. And Ron Chernow is a really good writer. He's very engaging. Um, but I like, I'm just not into presidential biographies and I do not have the stamina for like thousand page biographies. Um, and so I picked it up because my book club is reading it and I was like, I'm going to give this a college try. Like I'm going to really try to do it. And I'm like two and a half chapters in and I just, I don't know if I can. I just, it's just, just not my thing. It's just not my thing. Did you read Hamilton? I, oh my gosh, I read like 600 pages of Hamilton, but that book is like a thousand pages long and I just gave up. I was going to say, yeah, I, I did. I let a read along of it on my blog because we all got it for Christmas one year after Hamilton yeah. was popular. And so like, that is the only way I was able to get through it. And I feel like turn out he is like, he's pretty good, but he needs to be cut by like 300 pages Man, in all of his books. Yeah. It's so much extra info. It's, yeah. it's just, so I'm not surprised. It's just really long. And I, I'm trying because I want to be a person who can finish a giant biography, but like, I just can't. So we'll see. I It's it's good. The writing is great. If you're into presidential biographies, into big biographies of white dudes, like it's a great one. Like the writing is excellent, <laughs> but uh, just not necessarily my thing, even though I, I want to like 
pretend that it is or try that it is. So uh, the book that I am more excited that I am reading now is called The Dragon Behind the Glass by Emily Voigt. And this is a book about um, the uh, dragonfish or the Asian arowana, which is a status symbol that people believe bring good luck. And it is um, uh, loved in like aquariums and fish tanks. And it is but it has also like caused a lot of problems. Like people are murdered for these fish. They sell individual ones of like particular types of the species sell for like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and so they, this fish is being bred and there's a ton of them in captivity and they have this like very strange market of like aquarium lovers of these fish, but also like they basically don't exist in the wild anymore because they got so overfished when they were super popular. Um, so anyway, Emily Wood is a journalist and she's kind of investigating the whole like world of this dragonfish. So she, for parts of it, goes to like these crazy fish shows in Japan. And then there's part of it where she's like going up a river in the jungle trying to see like the origin place of these fish to see if she can see one in the wild. And um, so it's just a really, really interesting, weird book about like the stuff we do for our collections and but also like nature and how we try to tame it, but kind of can't. And um, the thing I, I love, the, there's a blurb on the front cover of the paperback that I have that says, uh, calls it an immensely satisfying story full of surprises and suspense. Things get weird fast. And that was from a Wall Street Journal review, which makes me laugh every time I see it. Because uh, it is, it's super weird and just just fun and, and different. So um, I'm excited about finishing this one. Uh, it's called The Dragon Behind the Glass by Emily Voigt. That looks really good. And I just Googled an arowana and they're like, they're, I guess they're neat looking there. I, I would think I was expecting it to be more like glamorous as a fish. Um, no, they're like, they're kind of weird looking. It seems like, uh, <laughs> but I mean, but if they, if they bring good luck or whatever, then that's, uh, that's good. Yeah, apparently. So I think if I remember right, like you can't actually get them in the United States. It's illegal to transport them here because they're technically an endangered species. Um, so you, if you wanted one, you couldn't bring it to the United States unless you like smuggled it over, which would be, I don't know. There's some stories about people smuggling fish in this book too that I wish I remembered exactly the specifics, but they were so bananas. I was just like, why did you ever think that was a good idea? Like that clearly wasn't going to work. But uh, <laughs> I do love failed smuggling stories. Um, True, okay. yes. So we're, uh, I think that wraps up episode two. It does. So uh, if you want to follow us on social media, we are on Twitter. Uh, I am at it's Alice time uh, because it is. And Kim is at Kim the dork, um, which I think that that's like a badge of pride. Kim, <laughs> It is. It is. That's, that's great. Um, if you uh, want to uh, rate and review us on iTunes so people can find us more easily. So uh, you can either just give us like a star rating or write a little review. Um, and then I think that's about it. Yeah. So for Brooke Riot, this has been Alice Burton and Kim Ukra. 